0: We're looking at Acts 4 and 5 tonight. We're looking at a very interesting passage. When I prepare for these, I read uh, commentaries and also read other people's sermons, old sermons, and um, it's really interesting. I've been kind of tracking with some different preachers that preach through Acts, and now I skip Acts 5, 1 through 11, but we're going to try to look to it tonight, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that other people didn't preach on it, but uh, we're trying to consider faithfully what the Lord's teaching us. And, um... What Acts is, the book, it's the second half of Luke's Gospel, actually. Luke wrote them together to the same guy, a friend of his named Theophilus. And what they are, what Acts is, is a picture of the church growing and going out. And growing and going out in spite of both external opposition and tension and internal tension and opposition. And so when you read the story of Acts, that's what it is it's this tiny movement at the beginning. With these 12 guys and 120 people, and more people buy into it, more people buy into it. And there's external opposition from religious authorities, political authorities, economic authorities, but there's actually also internal opposition. And what we're looking at tonight is we're actually looking at some of the problems within the early church. And um, we're, we're jumping in at Acts 4.32, we're going to read through 5.11 about some of the problems within the church and how it continues to grow. So this is the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and I pray now as we consider a passage that is difficult, uh, that is hard to think about, that confronts us, dear Lord, that shows us that you are the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that you didn't change, dear God, but you're still deeply concerned with what is good, what is right, and what is true. I pray that you would teach us, dear Lord, we'd be honest with ourselves, and your word would change us. Be with us, Holy Spirit, in your name we pray. Amen. If the purpose of Acts is to show us the church growing, and uh, and to demonstrate, and and for the purpose of actually want, calling us to kind of... and, and Urging us to kind of get in on that movement, right? That's what it's written for. Then it's incumbent upon Luke to deal with reasons why people don't want to be involved in the church, right? He's trying, he's writing Theophilus and he's saying at the beginning of Luke, he says, I wrote these things to, so that you may be confirmed in what you've been taught, so that you will buy into this gospel thing. And so for that reason, it's incumbent upon him to deal with the issues and the reasons why someone wouldn't want to get in on this. And there's probably no more cited criticism of the Christian faith than hypocrisy. Then Christians lead two lives. They're hypocrites. And that's what Luke is dealing with in this passage. He's dealing with, and inauthenticity has kind of plagued the church, um, not just now, but all throughout history. Elizabeth and I watched this mini-series. It's based on a Ken Falk book called The Pillars of the Earth. And it's about the medieval Catholic church. And um, all the clergymen are presented as these guys who, when they're with the kind of unsuspecting public and the trusting public, they're very pious and they do all the things you expect clergymen to do. But behind closed doors, you find out that they're just these kind of like ravenous politicians and power uh, kind of brokers and all this kind of stuff. And what they're about is about seizing power and wealth and those kind of things. And so that's kind of the way we a lot of times we see Christians portrayed in media is, is that Okay, they preach this one message, but who they are is really, really different. And one of the things that happens in the church today, there's an article came out in GQ several years ago by a writer named Walter Kern. And uh, in this article, this guy who's not a believer decides, I'm going to go live in Christian culture for seven days. And he writes, it's actually a great article, he writes this lengthy article about how he wore Christian clothes, listened to Christian radio, watched Christian TV, read Christian books, they had a Christian diet, um, Uh, Read his kid nighttime stories from Christian books. What else did he do? It it was kind of amazing how many different things he could surround himself with Christian stuff. And his conclusion at the end of the article was this. Christianity has no substance. That what I experienced was actually just pop culture without the cuss words in it. That what the church is today and its kind of marketing campaign to the world is... All right, we see pop culture generating numbers and getting youths involved, and so we're going to take out the questionable content and then and kind of baptize and bleach out that and then add some Jesus words. And this guy's conclusion at the end of the week is like, it's the most inauthentic thing I've ever experienced. The church is a lot of times just, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but like this kind of youth generation, this includes me, is frustrated with kind of like our parents' 1980s cheesy Christianity, like the program-driven, kind of stage-oriented, trying-to-get-numbers Christianity. It feels so inauthentic, right? And not only, I mean, that's one manifestation of inauthenticity, but certainly the most troubling one is the just the Christian leaders who preach one way, and we find out who have been living another way, right? And it's fun and interesting to think about it on that level, but what this text forces us to do is to force... It forces us to also think about ourselves, to bring it down and out of kind of that cultural and institutional realm, but into the personal realm, because this text deals with specific individuals in the church, and it forces us, all of us, to interact with hypocrisy on a personal level, namely the idea of being one thing, but trying to look like we're something else. And so the question is really, how does God think about how does he deal with hypocrisy or deal with Christianity that's kind of driven by appearance. What does he think about it? And this is a helpful passage for unbelievers and believers alike to consider. If you're a believer tonight, it forces us to consider ourselves and to consider our lives. Are we two-faced? Do you live a certain way in one setting, but in another setting, live another way? Do you profess you know, to, in the songs tonight to have one love, but in fact in other settings, profess and follow another love? One of my favorite TV shows is also one of the most terrifying shows on television, Dexter. Um, he's a serial killer, serial killer, if you follow that. Um, it's a great show. And what the show is about is about how he has two lives. He's a, he has this public self. He's a, he works for the police department. And in public situations, he acts and adapts so that he can be accepted and even praised, but then he has what he calls his dark passenger, and this is his other self that only comes out at night, and only the whole show is about the tension between the two lives that he leads and the stress of holding them apart, but at the same time always desiring that he could wish he could be one and fully known. And the real kicker about the whole show is the whole time he's telling you, my hidden life is actually who I really am. And as we consider this passage... It forces us to soberly consider our own lives and actually forces us to consider that maybe our hidden life is actually who we really are. So it's good for believers sobering, but it's also good for unbelievers because what I hope you see in this passage is a God who's ardently opposed to inauthenticity, to hypocrisy, to appearance-driven Christianity, that he's just as upset, and He's in fact, he's probably more upset than you are by people who pretend to be one thing when in fact they're another. So what is it? What's happening in this passage? I read the previous verses from uh, 4.32 because there's a contrast going on. Sometimes the way we learn is we see what one thing is so we can understand the opposite of it. And that's what Luke's doing here. In verses 32-37 through 37 in Acts 4, he's giving us a picture of what the Christian community really ideally is like and operates in its best kind of circumstances This is what it ideally looks like. They're described the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. No one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They were sharing, they were one heart, they were one soul. You can't be one heart, you can't be one soul with someone else if you have another life, if you have another side, if you have another agenda. You can't be one with someone if you also have a separate life. This is this is what causes divorce today, right? Two individuals call themselves one, but it gets revealed that one individual actually had a separate life. And you find out, oh, in fact, we were never one. You were always somebody else, right? Without hypocrisy, they could be one together. As long as anybody has a hidden life, a hidden agenda, a separate life, you can't be one. So he's giving us a picture of what it looks like when they're united in heart and mind, right? There's no guile, there's no pretense, there's no hidden, there's no separate agenda, there's no, well, while I'm here, I'm here, I'm all in, but I kind of have this other life as well, right? And, of course, one of the primary ways we see their oneness is they're investing their life into this community. They're taking their physical resources and saying, with all of me, I'm all in, so much so that y'all could have my stuff. That's how one... That's how in they are. That's how much there's not another part to them. There's not another side to them that they've put in their whole life in. Literally, money. And so we get a glimpse, specifically, of an individual in there. In verse 36, Joseph, who was called by the Apostles Barnabas. And we have this a picture of an individual's generosity, what it looks like for him to be one. And what we're told is that He's a Levite. He's a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He didn't just put a couple of dollars in the offering plate. The guy sold real estate in order to support the church. This is a big, generous gift. They chose items that they own, investments, and they went into trouble of liquidating them and giving it to church in order to care for people in need. And the reason why is simply because their brothers and sisters are in need. They weren't trying to purchase a reputation. They didn't want to become known. It wasn't for adulation or anything like. The church, and especially Joseph, just saw people in need and moved toward them in need out of compassion. That's why they did it. And he gets a nickname for it, right? He gets a nickname. His name is Joseph, but the apostles give him the nickname of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. You get a nickname because there's a certain characteristic or story that you portray. That's how we all get nicknames, right? Mark Ingram and Trent Richardson had a cool nickname till this past weekend. Now it's not really flying right now. But, um, but that's how you get it. It's because you become known for something. And his nickname reveals that he becomes known for being an encouragement. Because his giving is an encouragement. And what we got to remember about the nickname the son of encouragement, an encourager, an encourager is not somebody who points to himself. What he becomes known for is for ushering people along, for being completely other-oriented and moving them along towards something else beside himself, what we know to be is Jesus. Barnabas is known for being completely other-oriented, so much so that he actually gets the nickname of being the guy who helps everybody a ton. That's his nickname. The picture here, y'all, is just needy people helping needy people because their Savior helped them when they're needy and still helps them. There's no double-mindedness. There's no guile. There's no hypocrisy, and that sets up the contrast for chapter five, one through eleven. On the heels of this story, if you have your NIV, it says, "And a man named uh, Ananias, I believe," but actually, the right word there is "but a name," but a man named Ananias, because he's contrasting them, and he's bringing those two stories together. He's telling a story of one man, and then another. And he read, in, in the story, we read the story. He, saw, he and his wife sold a piece of property. With their knowledge, they held back some of the proceeds and brought the rest of the apostles' feet. And the apostle Peter questions him. Why have Satan filled you to lie to the Holy Spirit keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? When it remained unsold, it was yours. Did it not also remain yours? After, uh, was it, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived the steed in your heart? Not lied to men, but to God. When he heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last." Is the problem that he didn't give enough money? Is the problem that there was a required amount of money he was supposed to give and he didn't give it? That's not the problem here. Peter's making it clear. He's actually, this is an important point. This is not teaching communism. Peter's saying, hey, when the property was yours and you didn't endeavor to give it to God, it was yours. This was never required of you. There was not a certain amount of money you had to give, it was always yours. The problem is this he sold a field so that he could be known for someone who sold a field and gave the proceeds to the church. But he decided to lie about how much he sold the field for. That's why Peter questions him about his deceit, right? He lied about what he got for the field. Now, why would he lie for the purchase price? It's because he wants to get credit for being someone who sold a field and gave all that money to Jesus, but he actually doesn't want to give all that money to Jesus. Because what he's doing, his goal here, this is which you have to pay attention to, his goal here is actually not to help needy people. Now, that's a byproduct of what his goal here is. His goal here is to purchase the kind of reputation that Barnabas had. He saw that and thought, I want to be somebody that's known like that, but it's going to cost me a ton, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell the field, everybody will see that, but I'm not giving him all the money because I think I can purchase that reputation with less money. He wasn't helping people in need. That was simply a byproduct of his purpose of saying, I want to purchase a Christian reputation with my actions. He's not generous. This is very much self-oriented. And then the question is, why is, it, why is this so bad, right? This is not your like, evangelistic sermon that you're going to preach to an unbeliever for the first time. Like, oh yeah, and by the way, sometimes God gets really upset with people and strikes them dead. Right? Why is it so bad? That's the question. How could God so severely punish someone for something that kind of seems kind of mostly just mischievous, right? The reason why is because God hates hypocrisy. Hypocrisy wants to look like something on the outside without having the heart on the inside. It is being something different on the outside than who you are on the inside. And God hates it. And so he displays in dramatic fashion how much he hates it. Ananias wants to appear as generous. He sees the reputation. He sees the nickname given to Joseph. The gift is not given for the purpose of aiding people in need. It's so he can get that image of being a Christian person, of being a generous person, because he sees it happen, right? And all the while on the inside, he's not concerned with the kingdom of God. He's concerned with his reputation and his comfort. Who they appear to be in their giving is very different from who they are in their hearts, and they're exposed. And here we see just how seriously God takes the sin of hypocrisy. Why does he take it so seriously? <laughs> because hypocrisy destroys wholeness. It is the opposite of what it means to be human. It disintegrates the human being, the human soul, and the human experience. There's nothing more corrosive to what it means to be a person than to be a hypocrite right appearing one way at certain times and in fact being another person at other times right it's literally you're you're divided against yourself you're literally disintegrating when we and we've all been there we're all there in some degrees when we live as a hypocrite we're literally i'm i'm here i'm one person here i'm another person here and there's a tension between those two lives right we're at odds with ourselves because what we have inside betrays who we are on the outside. And there's nothing more destructive to the message of the gospel than hypocrisy. And that makes sense why Jesus deals with it so harshly. Because God's at the beginning of the church movement, right? This is well, this is like three months, two months into the church movement's beginning in all of history. And what he's doing here is he's saying, at this moment, do you see how much I hate hypocrisy? He just like Unbelievers and believers alike today hate hypocrisy in the church, and that's why it deals with it so harshly. And we have to know what kind of I want to explore a little bit deeper why it's so dangerous within the church. And the first reason why is because it doesn't work, it actually doesn't accomplish what we hope it would accomplish when we create that pious life that's actually distinct from who we really are. Changing on the outside without dealing with your inside, it doesn't work. Ananias can't leverage favor from God or favor from man by his cleverly crafted plan to appear in public as all Christiany. It just doesn't work, right? What does he get for executing his plan to act Christiany for the purpose of not serving the kingdom in humility, but for the publicity that he could generate for himself? What does he get in response to that? He gets death. Do you see it doesn't work? Acting Christian doesn't work. It didn't justify him, it didn't validate him, it didn't redeem him, it didn't give him a reputation among men. It's a farce, it doesn't work. Again, pay attention to what happened, we've got to remember what happened in the text. He does so much more than probably what any of us in this room have done. He doesn't put a couple of bucks in the offering plate. He doesn't even write a check for his monthly tithe. This is what he did. This is anachronistic He got a realtor. He put real estate on the market, had people look at it, had people make bids on it. He went to great lengths to establish his hypocrisy. He went to great lengths to do something really Christian looking and God killed him for it. None of us are going to sell real estate in order to build a church. I I I actually hope all of us in this room do at some point in our life. It's not commanded, but I hope you give greatly to the church. Odds are, Not many of us are going to sell real estate so that God can build a church. This guy sells real estate so that God can build a church. It gets him nothing. We've got to be honest about ourselves for a minute and understand that we're all, to some degree, craving to act like this Christian image of who we're supposed to be, but within our hearts we're fiercely holding on to idols, to loves, to biases, to angers. These things we're clenching on on tightly and we want to be a Christian, but we don't want God to take those things away from us, right? Because we love those things dearly. So we want to staple some fruit on the outside and hopefully get a pass as being someone who acts like a Christian. This guy does something way more Christian than any of us will probably ever do. There's no pass. So we come up with methods to act Christiany on the outside because we don't want to change on the inside. In some ways, kind of a perfect illustration, this is silly, I don't care what y'all do with Facebook, Um, but Facebook is like the perfect kind of Hippocratic (laughs) manifestation for all of us, a hypocritical manifestation for all of us, because on Facebook, Facebook is all your good you and none of your bad you, is it not? (laughs) It's interesting the way people talk on Facebook, it's all your best statements, you affirm all the best things, you defend great things, it's none of your stupid things you say, right? Right? So all your best pictures. You load up your pictures, and you sort through them because you don't want any of the pictures that reflect poorly on you, right? Hopefully. I don't know. Employers are looking at it, just so you know. But, um, <laughs> But Facebook is all of our good us and none of our bad us, which actually, when you think about it, that means it's actually not us. It's just our cleverly crafted kind of public image that we want everybody to buy into, right? What's interesting... Here's what I'm not saying. I'm about to say something. Make sure you're not hearing me wrong. It's interesting how many times people appraise their spiritual health by the amount of time they spend reading Scripture. I'm not saying don't read your Bible. My point is simply this how much you read your Bible does not necessarily reflect spiritual maturity. That's often the way people actually very consistently measure their spiritual maturity, it's not listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Because you know what? You can read your Bible and not love Jesus. You you can't be full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and long-suffering and steadfastness and self-control, apart from having Jesus work inside of you. That's why those are listed as the fruit of the Spirit. That's why those are barometers for your spiritual health. You can fake those for a little while in front of a few people, but not for long. Those things well up deep from within inside of you. When someone works deeply inside of you, your heart gets changed. God doesn't care about our moral superiority complex. And you have to rest, You, you got to wrestle with go, what goes on in this passage, because the guy does better stuff than any of us will do. And it didn't work. And it didn't work because on the outside, hypocrites, people who know the deep love of Jesus, may appear similar in some regards, but it doesn't take long for a Christian or a non-Christian to see the difference between one person that's consumed with their moral superiority and their Christian activity list, the difference between that person and a person who's been changed (coughs) deeply by being loved. And the key difference is one is arrogant and frowns upon bad people, and the other is humble and broken. And immoral people aren't put off by them, Immoral people are not put off by them or their attitude. Rather, they gravitate toward them. Within the Gospels, Jesus, when he deals with the hypocrisy of the religious people, the Pharisees, he tells them it's socially repellent. Like, you're pushing people away. Don't you see this? Because Jesus hangs out with all the people they hate. That when the Gospels at work, all the bad people gravitate toward it. Are we becoming a group of people that anybody can come to, that in fact gravitate toward because we're full of humility, or are becoming a Christian bubble that's repellent to those in need of mercy. Do you see that hypocrisy, it doesn't work. It fails as a religious system, both in front of man and in front of God. But God takes it seriously, not just because it doesn't work, but also because it opposes the Christian gospel. The hypocrite's gospel is my moral superiority and my commitment sets me apart, right? At least the moral superior- superiority I can demonstrate in, in some, some context, because in other contexts, I'm actually someone really different. And if people saw that, I'd be rejected. But apart from that, I'm pretty religious. I'll live it, and it's what makes me me, and you should aspire to be like me and on the path that I'm on. I can give you directions how to do it if I don't turn you off with my arrogance and my pride and my judgmental nature. That's the hypocrite gospel, and Jesus hates it. If you don't believe me, read any time he talks to the Pharisees. His most venomous words are for the religious people who are faking it, who are changing themselves on the outside, but have no love and have been changed by the gospel and have encountered the sweet mercy of God on the inside. Because the true gospel is broken people stuck in a mess that we made. It's my own doing, and he cleans us. And for something dirty to get clean, this is the gospel in the simplest form. For something dirty to get clean, something clean has to get dirty. And the gospel is not people presenting their goodness to God. The gospel is people hoping That Jesus will present himself to God With all our dirt on him And he does That's what he does at the cross And the hypocrite Opposes the gospel of Jesus Because the gospel requires an acknowledgement of your junk A deep and thorough So thorough that in fact it goes It actually goes beyond your bad And into acknowledging That all of your good isn't enough either And only then Does the healing of the gospel Really occur there's a great quote Oh, here it is. From an English preacher named George Whitfield from the eighteenth century, and he makes this point. See, our problem's not just our bad stuff, our problems are our good stuff. Do you realize that the problem with Ananias is his good actions? That's what separates him from the gospel? And here's what George Whitfield says. Before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, the sin of your nature, but likewise the sins of your best duties and performances. The poor sinner, when awakened to his condition, flies to his duties, his performances, to hide himself from God, and goes to patch up a righteousness of of his own. And he says, I will be mighty good now, I'll reform, I'll do all I can, and then certainly Jesus Christ will have mercy on me. But before you can speak peace to your heart, you must be brought to see that all your duties, all your righteousness, put all together, are so far from recommending you to God. Are so far from being any motive and inducement to God to have mercy on your poor soul that He will see them to be filthy rags that God hates them and can 't but be away from them if you bring them to him in order to recommend you in order to recommend you to his favor i don 't know what you think, but this is what Whitfield says: I can say that even when I pray I sin that even when I preach, I sin, I can do nothing without sin, even my repentance has to be repented of. And my tears have to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Savior. Our best duties are just like our most splendid sins. And before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only repent of your sin, but also of your righteousness. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of the heart. Do you ever feel the need of the righteousness, not just the forgiveness of Jesus? Can you say, Lord, may you justly damn me for the best duties I ever did perform. If you are not thus brought out of yourself... You may speak peace to yourselves, but yet there is no peace. What Whitfield is saying is, our problems are not our bad stuff. Our problems are our bad stuff and our good stuff. Neither one of them restores to God. Both of them separate us from God. Because you know what? This is what happened last night, because it happens every Monday night. I don't sleep well, because I'm, consi- right? this is, I'm trying to preach the gospel here on Tuesday nights, Right? I think God likes people preaching the gospel. But you know what? I don't, you know, I don't sleep well on Monday nights? Because I think if I'm not prepared, if I'm not structured right, they'll see me as a failure. Y'all, I pray panicked on Tuesday afternoon because, yes, I want you all to hear the gospel. I want me to be changed by the gospel. But I also pray panicked because a lot of that panic is I don't want to fail in front of everybody. Y'all, there's deep selfishness weaved within every Tuesday night. I've got to repent of my preaching and my prayer. Our good stuff is not good enough. The hypocrite hides his bad and trusts in his good. And that's why he's arrogant and that's why he despises the weak. That's why he despises the broken and the needy. That's why he's an elitist. That's why he doesn't know anybody who's not like him. He's bought into the mirage of his own cleverly engineered public relations campaign. And the hypocrite has hidden away and ignored... All is bad. He's hidden it down in her heart, and he's trusting it's good. And y'all, th- this is me, and this is y'all. I struggled all week preparing this passage. I had the hardest time preparing for this passage because it was so hard for me to look at it. Because we're all in that. And Les Newsom, the campus minister, Ole Miss, kind of pointed me toward these concluding points of, how does healing begin? How it gets changed? And the first thing is you've got to realize God sees all of you. God already sees all of you. He sees all of Ananias and Sapphira. They're seen for who they are right off the bat. How Peter comes to know it, I don't know. I don't know if God told him. I don't know. But part of the point here is who you are, God knows. When Jesus is dealing with Pharisees in Luke eleven forty. He says, "He says, you fools! Don't you know that the person who made the outside also made the inside?" So he sees that as well. That means that all the time and all the devotion that we've developed for keeping others from seeing who we are, all our smoke and mirrors, all the personality things, our senses of humor—that's one, certainly one of our smoke screens. He sees through it all, and he sees who you are. And the question is: Is that a comfort or a terror? Is that a comfort to you or is that a terror? Because to the hypocrite, it's a terror because it's exposure. It's being fully known. It's being completely exposed, which is the greatest fear. God sees it all. And when you realize he sees it all, when you kind of like marinate in that fact, you actually will rest for the first time in your life. And you won't rest because you have your life together. That's why we're trying to get our lives together because we think if we get everything in a row... We can finally rest. No, no, no. You'll rest when you see, realize God sees it all because you'll realize that the one person whom you have the greatest incentive of hiding from sees it all. And so the stress and the anxiety and the lifestyle of hiding, it just ends at that point, does it not? He sees it all. You're exposed. You're exposed. And when you get that, you can actually you can get off the treadmill of your image management program, and there's rest to be had in the reality that nothing's ever been hidden from him. Nothing about you's ever been hidden from him. There's rest in that. You got to realize he sees all of you, and then realize that the way our two lives come back together is through bringing the honest nature of both of them to Jesus. And you see what happens is when we take communion, the bread is broken, and Jesus is saying. My body was broken so you could be put back together. That I undergo what you should undergo, but I'm going in your place. And he does all that so that we don't have to endure those things. The gospel is light, and light reveals all of who you are. And I would urge you, don't be fearful. Because there's nothing. This is actually what we all want. This is actually what you want in your marriage, is if you're kind of willing to go all the way down there. What we all want is to be completely known and still loved. And that's exactly what the gospel is. We're scared of it, but it is sweet. The best two hours of my marriage was early on. Um, I'll close with this. The best two hours of our marriage was very, very early on. And it was uh, actually within the first week of our marriage when Elizabeth and I sat down and had a frank conversation. And for the first time in my life, with somebody else I shared everything all of it and Elizabeth wept it was it was all the bad stuff there, I didn't, because of because of her heart and because of her tears I didn't hold any back she saw all of me everything and she wept for me and she forgave me and she healed me. And for the first time in years, I felt like one person. That I didn't have a separate life that I was hiding from anybody else. It was actually her forgiveness that made me one again. That's what Jesus offers in the gospel. This is a place where you can bring that other side of you and say, This is me too. But I don't want anybody to know, but Jesus, can you handle it? And He can. And His people can. And the church is one of the places. you come and you share with this people not everybody I'm not saying everything but I urge you to become part of a community in which you can bring the other side of you and say this is me too and experience the kind of forgiveness that puts you back together let's pray